Think of your workplace, where it is, how long you're there, who you work with, the tools you use. Now, what would your job have looked like in 1916? Would it have been worse? Would it have even existed? Would you be allowed to work there? Things have changed, haven't they? And what will happen over the next hundred years? We are on the cusp of several revolutions. Things like artificial intelligence and robotics will shape how our societies function. But there's something else that's already here. It's called the sharing economy. And it's on the other side of the equation. Every time you order an Uber or hire someone on Airtasker. Welcome to Think Digital Futures, where we bring you stories from the digital age. I'm your host, Josh Nicholas. In recent episodes, we've been taking a look at life in a time of disruption, as technology comes to bear on industries like transport, manufacturing, and the media. But what about the workers? 80,000 Australians now work on a platform like Uber or Airtasker more than once a month. For consumers, these platforms make our day-to-day activities that little bit more convenient. But what is it like to work for them? Why would you drive for Uber or do a task on Airtasker? I come from a background where I work professionally and I'm currently in the process of changing careers. So that means going back to uni. I'm 39 years old, so... You know, it's a big step for me. This is David Dunstan. He's an Uber driver, but he's also part of a group called the Rideshare Drivers Association. It's an organisation working to represent drivers on platforms like Uber. We'll get back to that a little bit later. Right now, David is explaining why he drives for Uber. Essentially, he's going back to uni and he needs the flexibility it allows. I obviously need to be able to work flexibly um, to suit my studies and um, trying to get temporary work. I live, in, I live in Brisbane and trying to get temporary work I found to be quite difficult. Um, I've had a lot of rejections based on the fact that I'm overqualified and have too much experience to do temporary roles in the sort of work that I did previously. Mm. Um, so I was in this hard position where I'm like, well, I need something that's flexible and that's, you know, that I can have the the temporary nature and say when I can start work and when I can finish based on my studies because that's my first priority. And I just said started using Uber and someone said, oh, you know, you can become a driver quite easily. And I'm like, okay, what do you need? And you need a car and a license and a clean driving record pretty much. I'm like, okay, well, borrow some money to buy a car to do this. And I did so knowing that I was going to be, you know, self-employed and that I had to control my own hours. But, you know, the the appeal of the flexibility of working in this kind of environment was really my big decision in becoming an Uber driver. While David started working on Uber for its flexibility, Ben Wood did it because of the ease of getting onto the platform. At a time when he didn't have a job, it was an easy thing to pick up, and there was no end of demand for his services. Uh, well, I'd been overseas travelling for a few months, um, and when I came back to Sydney, I just thought it was a good option um, just for some work because you can pick it up sort of straight away while I was looking for other work in my chosen field but I ended up doing it for about nine months or so and it's the flexibility of it is what I liked so when I did pick up 
other sort of casual work, I guess. I could still do that on the side and not go hungry. If I had other work come up and, you know, I, I couldn't do it for a day or for a week, you, you just don't do it. Um, and there's no requirements on that whatsoever. And aside from what hours you go out and when you do it, it's completely up to you. So if you want to come home and watch something on TV, do it. If you want to go out and make some more money, you just drive a bit longer, you know? But do you see it as a as a long term? Like, could could you do that long term, or is it only a short term thing? Uh, I, I could do it long term. I mean, it's not my sort of chosen field, so I mean, mentally, I probably wouldn't do it long term because there's not a lot of progression, I suppose, in that sense. Um, but definitely, there was enough work I could have could have done it, you know, as long as I needed to, I suppose. The flexibility and ease of access afforded by jobs in the sharing economy is a common reason people give for working in it. With Uber, all you need is a car and a clean driving record, and bang, you can earn income. Other platforms are even easier. Take Airtasker. It runs a kind of marketplace where people post a little job that needs doing, let's say some furniture has to be moved or an IKEA cabinet built, and workers then bid on how much they'll be willing to do that task for. When I asked Airtasker CEO Tim Fung why someone would do a job listed on Airtasker, he was at pains to point out how flexible the work is, how much control over your life you can have. So I think the the positives of uh, working on Airtasker are that you get to choose what you want to do, when you want to do it, how much of it you want to do, and how much you need to get paid to make it worthwhile uh, for you to do that. Um, I think basically all of that um, empowerment allows you to create a flexible uh, career for yourself, uh, whether you want to call it a career or not, or whether it's just you know a hobby or you know something that you do in your spare time. Uh, but either way, you're in control of how you earn money. But who are the people on these platforms? Some of them, like David, are people who need the flexibility to work around school or other commitments. Others have some time to spare and enjoy the extra cash. But increasingly, there are people working on these platforms full-time, relying on the likes of Uber for the majority of their income. For some, this means big bucks. Just this week, Design Crowd announced a freelancer had topped more than a million dollars through the platform. But many aren't so fortunate. If you were to look at the kind of people that work for Uber or in the sharing economy, there's I'd probably split them into three different types. Uber does have a very large contingent of full-time workers, okay? These are people that work, uh, you know, 40, 45 hours a week that log on, that give reliability to their system. So then the second group is the sort of people that work ad hoc and part-time and they may work just on weekends and then there's people that are on the system that may do it once a month to get money to, you know, to pay the, pay the rent if they're a bit short. There are a bunch of people that do do this as full-time and it is, it is certainly an option for them. But you know, these are people that are from some of the most disadvantaged backgrounds. They're generally people from non-English speaking backgrounds that have difficulty engaging in the normal workforce, uh, that, um, that may be single parents, uh, people with disabilities. They can't engage in the traditional workforce and the flexibility and ease of access to employment keeps them in there. These are the people that get up at 4 a.m. every day they log on, they take you to the airport so you can fly to your job, you know, to Sydney or Melbourne or wherever it may be. Um, they're, they're, they work through the day, they, they, they wait for an hour without a job. They're online ready to provide you with service. 
because they don't have the skill set to have other forms of employment. It's this full-time workforce that Uber relies on that they don't really discuss and talk about that um, are there and they're the ones that are, are almost stuck in it. And you've got to remember once you enter into ride sharing, if you've got a car loan, you can't just end your loan. Yeah. You have to work. All of this flexibility comes with trade-offs. Over the last hundred years, we have built our societies around an assumption of stable jobs, regular paychecks, and many other working conditions. A lot of this is absent in the sharing economy. And the flow-on effects are huge. It's hard enough to land a loan or a rental agreement. But what if you don't have a steady paycheck? How can you plan when you don't know how many hours you'll work or how much you'll earn? And what happens when you get sick or injured? I put this to Tim Fong. So the first thing I would say is there's a relative level of insecurity if you assume that the status quo is that you deserve a full-time job just because, you know, you're preordained to have that full-time job. Now, for a lot of people, it's really difficult to get those full-time jobs. Um, What I would say is actually the big problem is how difficult it is to get a job, not how easy it is to lose a job. You know, like if you think about like full-time work, um, people have to, you know, queue up, do interviews. could be three months of interviews, all this like difficult stuff to get a job. Now, all that exists because of this full-time concept. There's a lot of friction there because employers are trying to slow down the way they grow because they know that once they take this employee on, you know, they have to pay super, they've got to pay all of these extra things. And it's like this huge burden and commitment. Because of that, that there are so many opportunities that are lost. So take an example of uh, you need someone to come in to help pack envelopes for a marketing campaign that is, um, that, that's coming up and it's going to be about you know, uh, seven hours of work um, and, and you really need someone really quickly. Now, in the, if you think about the world only in terms of there's um, nothing or there's full-time labor, then that job doesn't exist. When you have something like Airtasker, suddenly you make it really easy for someone to get that job and create that job. And so it happens. And so we genuinely see that, that most of the jobs that are happening on Airtasker are jobs that would not exist in the full-time economy. Well, we have built an entire society, getting loans, getting, uh, getting a rental agreement, all these kind of things based around this kind of steady job. Wouldn't we have to shift a lot of the way we think about society to flip to this model? Absolutely. And I think that that's really important that we do. And actually, if you talk to people in like the banking sector, for example, why is it that we, um, why is it that we say you can't have a mortgage if you're a freelancer? You know, there are people who are freelance workers who might have um, done 10 years of freelance graphic design, freelance journalism, uh, freelance tuition. You know, I'm a tutor of, of, of students. Um, there are plenty of jobs that are done um, as full-time freelancers, super, you know, um, uh, low risk because they've got hundreds of clients that, you know, buy their services. These people cannot get loans. If you go to NAB right now or, or Commonwealth Bank, they'll go, no, you can't have a loan because you're self-employed. The, um, however, someone who works in a bank or in a law firm can be there for three months, you give them three pay slips and they give you they give you a loan. Um, but yet it's really easy to lose your job in a bank or a law firm. You know, if there's downsizing, boom, you're out the door. So I think it's actually these archaic um, principles that are in the, the rest of the world that actually will need to change to this new type of working. Um, so I think uh, banks are going to look at, you know, oh, this person's been working on Uber and has earned a solid, um, you know, $1,000 a week for the last 
um, you know, three years, I think that's pretty low risk. Let's give this guy a loan. But societies have already changed considerably, especially in the area of work. The past hundred years saw us move through several different versions of what the workplace looks like. And there are some recent examples that look awfully familiar. Analogies that have previously been drawn are um, analogies to situations like the Hungry Mile in Sydney down in Sussex Street, where wharfies used to line up uh, at the beginning of the day and the stevedores used to come in and pick the guy that they thought looked the fittest and the strongest and give him work until they didn't want to anymore. Which is probably a bit disturbing because we know what that leads to and we also know how to avoid it. This is Assistant Professor Sarah Kane from the University of Technology, Sydney. She's written a lot about industrial relations and the sharing economy. According to Professor Kane, society moved on from the model of transient work exemplarised by the Hungry Mile by building up frameworks and a political will for collective action and worker protection. But these have been broken down over time giving us an increasingly casualised workforce and sparse union membership. All of the conditions we enjoy now are largely due to a combination of um, union representation and a system which allowed for and was expressly built to protect workers to some degree. As an individual worker, I really have little bargaining power against my employer. So it's collective action. When you, when you band together, you start building up some, some power. But that sort of necessitates a direct relationship between me and my employer, right? So that, that's, that's one of the fundamental assumptions is that I need to have a relationship with who employs me and there needs to be some way for that power to be brought. You're right. Having a direct employment relationship gives that direct line and direct sight between the employer and the employee and, and, and has there's mutual responsibilities for both employers and employees when you're engaged um, in the employment relationship. And of course we've seen that breaking down over time with casual work, with the gigging economy. We see less workers employed in that traditional employment relationship where you have one employer, one workplace and an ongoing relationship. Um, so there's that aspect. The second aspect you mentioned was um, exercising rights through collective action. It's very difficult as an individual in most cases to assert your rights or to, to um, improve your conditions at work. And that's something that we've seen again uh, uh, deteriorate over time. So uh, now we have about a little over 10% union membership in, in, in Australia. Um, and that means that most people in the workplace are trying to negotiate conditions on their own. We also have a system which since 1996 and probably a little bit before has started to really privilege individual rights over collective rights and representation. So the actual system now is based on a system of individual rights and protecting those, rather than, as it was historically, actually encouraging collective representation. So there's two things happening, and, and they're, um, they're related. So the breakdown of, of the collective system, um, and then, consequently, the growth of less secure forms of work. Now, if we, if we look at sort of what's happening now, or I guess what's been happening over the last couple of years is like the gigification. You have things like Freelancer, you have Airbnb, you have Uber, you have multiple ways of doing little jobs and there's no structured workplace. And, and a lot of these things, you're supplying the capital, you're supplying the car, you're supplying the apartment, you're supplying whatever. It sounds a lot like a continuation of that trend, that individualization trend, where I'm no longer part of a workforce with all the people that work around me. I'm very much by myself. 
Look, you're exactly right. And and the individualisation, this is kind of the, the pinnacle of individualisation. Um, and unfortunately, it, we have historical precedent for this. This is what work was like before you had those collective regulations, before you had um, a labour movement that fought for decent wages, for a decent job that people could, um, you know, live on and, and, and support their family on. So, so in some ways, we're seeing a return to forms of work that historically we've seen before, very precarious, um, hour by hour, task by task type job. So, so in that respect, we have got precedent. What we haven't seen is this combination of capital, labour, um, uh, expectation, um, and that really is something that that is is harder to get our heads around as regulators or as labour activists or as academics. We're not quite sure how to deal with that yet. As regulators figure out how to deal with the sharing economy and our society and our institutions evolve to accommodate a workforce more in flux, there are very serious issues faced by sharing economy workers right now. The decline of unions and the shift towards individuals had already created a huge power imbalance, but the relationship between workers and platforms is unlike anything we've seen before. If you have a full-time workforce, that works in this industry, whether it's Airtasker or Uber or whatever, you, you can't, you, as, an, as this kind of work, you can't get the sort of things that people take for granted in employment, like a loan for a home or, um, you know, have the stability that's re, that comes from employment. Um, and that's a real, that creates issues of inequality. I mean, that just does. We need to have a system in place where basic protections are applied to people in the sharing economy. The key issue underlying all of this is that Uber drivers aren't actually employees. They are contractors. Or probably more accurately, they're something in between. Something the law hasn't defined yet. And this is the same all throughout the sharing economy. Essentially, Uber treats drivers like they're contractors, as if they were individual businesses. Drivers aren't allowed to collectively bargain, they don't get superannuation payments, or many of the other things we all take for granted. But Uber drivers also lack many of the benefits of being a business, like control over the price they charge. Uber recently decided to slash prices by 20% around Australia, without consulting drivers. The company justified this by claiming it would increase demand, which is probably true in the aggregate. But it's had a huge impact for an individual driver like David, and there's little he can do but accept it. He has no power in the system. Ultimately, um, as a small business operator, I don't get to set my own rates. Now that's done by Uber. And when I first started, rates were 20% higher than what they are today. Now Uber made a unilateral decision overnight to slash its fares by 20%. And um, that's obviously made a huge impact on the way in which I operate as a business and the income I receive. So it is a struggle now for me as an Uber driver. Um, coupled with that, with an open market, with as many people able to enter into an Uber, you know, into a market as possible, which I knew at the time and I, I have no issue with, it does make competition for work um, fierce and it's changed the way in which I also work. I, I wanted to work um, more sort of weekdays, but now I'm forced to work Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, like the, the peak times. Um, 
so yeah, that it has impacted on the way I work and it has impacted on my income. And to cap it all off, David's role as an Uber driver is precarious at best. As a contractor, Uber can let him go at a moment's notice. He could be dismissed because of a bad review or complaint, if he rejects too many jobs, and he's even expressed concern about getting dumped for speaking to me. If that happens, there's little he can do about it. Um, uh, you know, so you would expect that there is fair process in place, and you would expect that um, you would expect that there is a course for um, uh, you know to appeal a decision. You would expect that Uber would give evidence. You would expect that there's some form of training or, or some form of coaching to assist you if there's a problem that's identified. There's very little in place for Uber. And in fact, if they deactivate you, they send you on a course that you have to pay three or $400 for to improve yourself as a driver. Now, <laughs> there's a number of risks there. This is a, this is a complete uh, disregard for their workers and the, the, you know, the human side of, you know, helping them through, through doing their work and, and, you know, um, basic common sense, I guess, that should be in place for this. Given the role platforms like Airtasker already play in so many lives and the incredible ambitions of their founders, I asked him if there was a way to make workers' lives that little bit more secure. So I think the first thing is um, what we believe in at Airtasker is openness and transparency. So I think um, it's really important that you communicate the rules and those rules are applied objectively to all people. Um, so for example, you know, if you're a person who uh, agrees to do three jobs and cancels all three of those jobs at the last minute, just doesn't turn up and gives no reason for that, I think um, most people would agree, oh, well, you know, that person should have to suffer some sort of recourse for that, right? You know, you, you, you stuffed a customer around who really wanted those three things done and now they don't have them done and, and, and they're stranded. So I think um, uh, it would be it would make sense then to create a rule that says, you know, if you do that, then there'll be a penalty. Like, um, you know, you can't work for the next week or whatever that is. Um, however, I think those rules need to be super transparent upfront so that everyone knows how it works and so that everyone can maintain that choice. Oh, Maybe I shouldn't bid on those three jobs because I don't think I'm going to be able to do them. Thus, I won't do them. And I think that that exists very much like uh, in the full-time world as well. You know, if you don't turn up to work three days in a row, you probably get fired or, you know, there's going to be penalties for that. So I think as long as you're open and you're transparent about how things work, then it then it's okay. What I think is wrong is when um, if a sharing economy business goes, oh, yeah, just arbitrarily we're kicking you off because we don't like you, then, then it's not really fair. Um, so... I think openness and transparency is the key. Society will eventually catch up to these new modes of work. The question is, what will this look like? What else will need to change? Our education system, our industrial relations laws, our concept of work itself? It's likely. I asked Tim Fung to imagine how work would change in the coming decades, as more areas of life and work succumb to this on-demand model. So I think the way that we work is changing like an incredibly fast pace. And I, I think um, it would be wrong for me to talk about any like um, new state that we go into because I think that the whole thing about this is it's constantly 
changing. And in 50 years' time, it'll probably still be constantly changing into something else. Um, so I think uh, one of the things is right now we really live in a world where it's mostly really full-time structures, what I would call a traditional uh, full-time structure or nothing else. And I think there's going to be a lot of things filling in that spectrum between zero and full-time. And I think that's a great, great thing. Um, but I do think the number one thing people have to get used to is one, uh, being able to accept and, and work with change. So, you know, um, not just expecting things to stand still and two, being more proactive and entrepreneurial about it. So I don't think, um, in the future, it will just be that, you know, you go to high school, you pop out and there's a job waiting for you and you just slot into that job. And as long as you do what you're told, you're going to make an income. I think people are going to be thinking about this every day, you know, like, how am I going to, you know, um, earn money? Like, and, um, you know, that, that is going to definitely favor those people who are proactive and, and, and want to be contributing to the community and who want to be earning money in an, in an entrepreneurial way. Professor Kane also has a positive view of how the likes of Uber will reshape our societies, maybe allowing for more time to study or work across different industries. But linked to that is a need to get back some of the power that has been lost. This is an issue that faces all of us as stakeholders. Well, I think there's a, there's a number of possible trajectories. Um, and this is, of course, imagining and hypothetical. Yeah. Um, so one is that workers um, in the future, I'm thinking about my teenage children, um, will enjoy the freedom to have multiple things going on, um, multiple jobs. They'll, perhaps that will keep them engaged and interested. Um, so there's, there's that kind of exciting aspect of it. You're not locked into a particular thing. You're not locked into a particular organisation. So it feels like there's lots of opportunities. The downside of it is that, as you've suggested at the outset, not having um, long-term ties with, with one organisation means it's very difficult to affect change in that organisation. That then skews power towards companies and organisations. If they have tenuous links to a whole range of people who can be easily replaced, Mm. then they don't necessarily have a commitment to them. There's no, you know, uh, two-way voice, as we would call it. And companies and organisations will just do what they want. Um, so I think that's, the, that's the, the big danger. And I think that's the one that future generations and, and future workers are going to have to think about how they overcome. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. We reached out to Uber and several of the major political parties to see if they wanted to comment on this story. Only Labour in Tasmania got back to us, saying there is some legislation in the works. Although it's unclear what that would do for working conditions. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.